Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. This afternoon, the Trail of Travel is being recorded here in the heart of Missoula, Montana. I'm sitting with my friend and yoga teacher, Serena Early. I've been wanting to sit with her and uh, learn about her life before she discovered yoga and share some of the beautiful teachings that have most certainly changed my life. So I just wanted to start by saying thank you so much, Serena, for pouring me a cup of tea and sitting with me on the trail of travel. My pleasure. Thank you. My first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I was born and raised in Waco, Texas. And the fun part about Waco, Texas is knowing my mother's maiden name was Patty Rose Irvin. Was she teased much? No, of course not. Patty Rose Early, Patty Rose Late, Patty Rose Early with stomach ache, which she was teased all the way through. My birth parents were divorced when I was like 18 months old. My mother remarried when I was five, and she married a man who was a farmer, a rancher, a contractor, an independent insurance adjuster. So I learned a lot from him about darn near everything. How to be a carpenter, how to drive a tractor, which I learned how to do before I built a car, cutting fields and all of that sort of stuff. I also learned how to hunt because he was a hunter. So we would go dove hunting. He and his brothers had a farm or ranch land outside of Waco, and it had several tanks on it. And he would put me by a tank, a pond, or whatever, and say, wait for the birds to come. The doves will come. Then you can try to shoot them. And at one point, he put me by an off tank from there. I saw water moccasins, so of course I tried to shoot them, and he came over in a little bit and said, what are you shooting at? And I said, snakes. <laughs> I don't like them. I didn't manage to kill them either, but I might have scared them, which would be fine. So he moved me away from that tank and someplace else. So adventures growing up, Holy Toledo. That would be one, learning how to hunt. Another was learning how to ride a bicycle, and he would be hanging onto the bicycle seat running behind me until he couldn't do it anymore because he had a back issue. Then, when I was 10, I got a horse, a boy. <laughs> and I had a birthday party. My birthday is in June, so we were out at the farm, and Dad brought the horse over, and mother, my mother put the bridle on and managed to put the bit in upside down and backwards so that when he pulled, it did not press against the tongue and try to stop. 
So of course I was the first one on, and I rode off into the distance and I turned around and came back, and the horse was not stopping. I honestly don't remember what happened, except I'm sorry that I ended up in the ground, looking up at the horse going, yeah, hey, okay, fine. <laughs> ah, and then that got fixed and everybody else got a ride too. So that was sort of the beginning of the adventures of the farm and what to do and all of that sort of stuff. Huh. It was fun. Then what? Going deer hunting on a deer lease in South Texas. Not wanting to kill a deer, thank you very much. So I would always look the other direction. I don't see them. So that solved that problem for me. But it was fun to be away. But it was also hot, and as I recall, there was an outhouse, but there was no bathroom as such. And so Dad would lift the hose up and then hose us all down. Thanks. <laughs> Do not give that man a hose with water attached to it, because he would definitely be wet. That was the rule. Someplace along the line, they moved out of the little rental house that they had. There was a different house that was in the neighborhood. It was on a creek, so you could ride your bike down the alley because it wasn't an alley for cars, it was an alley for people to walk, and you could ride down and try to jump the creek or fall into it, whichever happened. I did both. It was just interesting. And then one of my good friends from obviously elementary school lived next door, so we would play. and. There was a big vacant lot next to the house that had peach trees in it. Oh boy. And we could climb the trees. We could also climb up onto the roof of her garage and jump off. Why? Because we could. Isn't that what you did? <laughs> I had a dog, Gus, who was a border collie. Much reviewed. Fences were not that popular. Dogs roamed. And he roamed up and down the street, and there was a woman down the street who poisoned him. But he made it back to the house, and we made it to the bed. And then I had a slumber party, and we decided that we would egg her house. So we did. We felt like nanner, nanner, nanner. And she got me so knew that someone had done it. She called my dad because she figured he was the, the mayor of the neighborhood. And he came to me and he said, Serena, yes, sir. Did you egg her house? Yes, sir. Then we go clean it up. Okay. So we went and cleaned it up and left some marks, which some 10 or 12 years later you could still see where we had hit the front of the house. Huh. But nobody ever hollered at her for poisoning dogs in the neighborhood. But Gus did. And that was and that neighborhood. And then it was, what are you going to do? Well, go to high school. Hmm. So I went to the, at that particular time, the high school that everyone in Waco had gone to. Waco High School, yes. And another high school had opened. It was closer, but nobody wanted to go. So we all stayed there. It was in downtown Waco, so you could, oh, walk away from lunch, and we did. So it was fun. It was fun. Did we do anything interesting? 
not that I remember right this moment. It'll probably come to me at three o'clock in the morning. One of my good friends from elementary school, junior high, high school, had started playing guitar. So it's like, oh, that's fun. So I would borrow hers and I would play too. And then at some point, I've been trying to remember exactly when all of this occurred, and I can't, and it don't matter. The church that we went to, let's be real, Waco was Baptist, except for if you weren't. And then if you want to keep track of other weird things that happened in Waco, Dr. Pepper was started, brewed, whatever, in Waco. But we were raised Presbyterian, and the Presbyterian Church decided to take a tour of Mexico looking at where they were proselytizing, she says politely. And I can't remember whether I got a guitar at that time in Mexico or whether it was when I went with my mother and my sister to see where my aunt, my great aunt, had moved after she quit teaching in Texas and she moved to Mexico because it was cheaper. I don't remember when I got my guitar, but I got one in Mexico at some point, which was handy as the Dickens and fun. And it still is. <laughs> but I sold that one or gave it away or some variation on that thing. Don't know and it doesn't matter. Huh. And then my mother wanted me to go to a fancy girl's college. So we took a tour through the South to look at all the ones, yeah. none of them wanted me. What a surprise. <laughs> I didn't want them either, so it was only fair. So I ended up going to Austin College, the Presbyterian College in North Texas, in Sherman, and had a grand time. Helped in the theater, did stuff like that, but by and large, just went to school. And then, of course, I almost flunked out, so I had to go to summer school. And then I didn't think when the time came that I had made enough grade point averages to graduate, so I just went home. And sure enough, I graduated. I just didn't get to March. Who cares? <laughs> I didn't. It's a lovely afternoon in Missoula. I'm sitting with my friend and teacher, Serena Early. Started studying yoga with her in Missoula in 2006, I think. <laughs> so, uh, Serena, I shared a quote with you before we started the interview, and uh, that was from, I think I got from one of my other teachers, but this just uh, starts with to talk about yoga, you have to talk in riddles. And so I chuckled to myself thinking that you know, actually scratch the surface of what yoga is. In, you know, the next 30 minutes, but I do want to start to explore the concept and um, definitely speak to folks out there who are curious, have a deeper understanding of the practice off the mat, as well as on the mat, but um, I'm just going to go ahead and start by asking, what is yoga? <laughs> what is yoga? That's a stunningly good question, and I don't know that I know the answer. I have a feeling it is a way to be in the world, given all the stuff that's been written, like the Yoga Sutras, the this is in the bats, and so forth. And it's like, yeah, and all of them are talking about how to be in the world. 
I first started taking yoga with a friend who was teaching at beautiful Austin College. And it was just fascinating and interesting just to do something else. I was, at that time, swimming because the college had put in a natatorium. Swimming and then she was also teaching yoga and that was just, oh, let's do this. And then she suggested that we go to Dallas and take class from an acquaintance of hers, who ended up being my teacher in Dallas, George Purvis, and we would go one day a week to a class in Dallas, which was fun and interesting. And then at some point, I think I had gotten a divorce and had moved to Dallas, and George wanted to not teach every day, so he gave me Thursdays to teach. And it was like, holy Toledo, how do you do this? Stand up and show what you know, or, or not. Someplace along the line in all of those places, I think the woman that I had taken class from in Sherman suggested you go to Feathered Pipe Ranch and study with Judith Lasser, 1981, Holy Toledo. So it's just been sort of one thing after another after another of adding to what I know about yoga, which is, I mean, the postures are there. They're there for a reason, and it's to learn how to control your body, which then leads you to learn how to control your brain. So it's just been fascinating. So my first experience of having a serious teacher was Judith at Thunderpipe, and then at some point others that I had studied with there. And I was looking at pictures last night, it's like all the pictures of India are people lying around the floor doing things. So <laughs> that. And someplace along the line, after I divorced and was teaching in Dallas, a friend from Feathered Pipe Ranch, who lived in Jackson, Wyoming, she had opened a yoga center, and I said, I want to come and teach. And she said, I'm doing all the teaching. Yes, ma'am. Then I went to visit, and she was pregnant, and she asked if I would just stay and teach and be there for her when the child was born. Like, Absolutely. After living in Texas for more than 40 years, I moved to Jackson, Wyoming, Holy Toledo. It's like looking out at the snow right now going, hmm, really? Okay. So moved to Jackson, started teaching at her studio, and I taught like five or six classes a week. It was one of those things. You just do it. And then you figure out what you know and what you don't know, and what you're going to talk about and what you're not going to talk about. And someplace in all of that, I think, Margo, the owner of the studio, suggested, why don't you go to India? Why do I want to go to India? So you can study with Mr. Iyengar. Oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> Figured it out. And I think George Burgess was also going, so I said, let's go. So I went. That was my first experience in India, and it was like, holy mackerel. And then made it home from that. And decided to go again a couple of years later. It's like, oh, bloody mercy. And be astounded at what you already know, because you do. There you are 
at the foot of the master, for sure. It was an experience. That's for sure. And being in a different country, a whole bunch of stuff that's just different. You know that from your time. <laughs> Interesting. And made some friends, but you know, it's one of those things that you're there for two weeks, three weeks, and then you don't see those people again. Well, okay. That's that. We made it from Jackson and then ended up moving to Montana. What a surprise. Well, let's see, I think Leslie is the one who got me here to teach a workshop. And Marlene Burke, who was the owner, founder of the Yoga Fitness Center, said, sure, come teach. I had a job already and was teaching at the Yoga Fitness Center. It was skippy. What a gift. It was a lovely spot, but it was time for me to go and let others come in and teach. The old, don't you know? Let's keep in mind that Mr. Angar was 96 when he died and he was still teaching, so maybe I'm just lazy. <laughs> and probably much more to the point is I've shifted from having an active physical practice into really trying to discern what the Yoga Sutras mean, what actually doing the postures could mean in terms of being present not only in your own life but in the world and treating folks and yourself with kindness. It's been an interesting journey and the good news is it ain't over yet. That's the voice of Serena Early. We were sitting in her home in Missoula watching the snow fall, talking about her introduction and her path in yoga. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the branches in the Ashtanga yoga tree. In Sanskrit, Asho is eight, the Anga can be translated as limbs. So I'm looking at the window of a beautiful tree with many <laughs> limbs. One thing that I've been hearing quite a lot recently is like, oh, I can't touch my toes, I can't, it's just nothing to do. And no, touching your toes doesn't have squat to do any of it. I think it's just being present in your own body, in your own mind, in the world. And you can look at the eight limbs of yoga that does start with ahimsa, which is can be viewed as non-violence or non-harming. And interestingly enough, I think most of us think of the non-harming aspect of being not harming someone else. Yeah, but what I've been coming to is I have to be kind to me, too. I am human. I am in the world. If I'm going to be nice to someone, I should also be nice to me. And that one is a little bit more challenging, I think, than most of us realize. And then the second is Satya, truth. And that was what Gandhi talked about 
those who said, well, why didn't you talk about the nonviolence? He says, no, it's the truth. It's the more important piece. It's like, yeah, okay. And then non-stealing. Well, that makes sense. And that one also, you know, you think about it being for someone, I don't want to steal from someone. What about stealing from yourself? What is it that you do that takes away pieces and parts? Oh, that. <laughs> so I have been really curious, interested, involved about the Yoga Sutras and how not only do they speak to us all, but how do we interpret it so that we come out in a better spot? And it's, I should go get Mr. Iyengar's treatise or explanation of the Yoga Sutras out of the Patanjali's book, because there's a note on the front that you gave me. I don't know whether you remember or not, but you gave me those. Wow. Remember? Yeah. Those a while back. Uh-huh. He's <laughs> like, oh, yeah. But Abhyasa, effort, Varyagra, you're letting go, and Aparigraha, my favorite, non-attachment. Now we get attached to the things people Let's go back to the things, and how can you move past all of that? It's just been interesting. And as I told Mandel earlier, I've been rereading for I don't know how many times, and it doesn't matter how yoga works. And it is intriguing, fascinating, informative, and worth reading more than once. So I am. And then, I recently ran across a book about the Yamas and the Niyamas, which is, whew, yay. Her explanations of what the Yamas and the Niyamas are is like, oh my goodness. Okay, that's yet one more way of thinking about this, which is what I've been trying to sort of incorporate into my life in all of that. Still not necessarily doing poses, although while I wait for the coffee or the tea to brew in the morning, I'm doing half-downward dogs in the sink. <laughs> because that's what I do with a student of mine who, like six or seven, eight years ago, had a stroke and then called and said, I want to take yoga again, but I'm not, I just want you to know, I'm not getting on the floor. So it was an interesting opportunity for me to think about doing poses without getting on the floor. How do you do that? Well, you can do it in a chair, crying out loud. You can stand up. You can do anything. You don't have to lie down on the floor. So it's been an intriguing opportunity for me to work with her. And I also worked with a gentleman who had a traumatic brain injury. I worked with a couple of traumatic brain injury people. It's just fascinating what you can do and what you can't do, and how do, how do you work around that? Why does it always have to be lean over and touch your toes? What about lean over and put your hands in the seat of the chair? Or do down the dog at the sink? Or for the delightful young woman that I worked with who's no longer on the planet, traumatic brain injury, and she was astounded. 
the best we could do or the most fun that we had was doing restorative poses. She just, it was fun. I learned a lot from her, for sure, as I am continuing to learn from these people that I see. And it just tells me that yoga is far more than just postures. It's an attitude, it's a way of life, it's a, it's a who you are. And what do you bring to the world? All of it. <laughs> this afternoon, the Trail of Travel is being recorded here in the heart of Missoula, Montana. I'm sitting with my friend and yoga teacher, Serena Early. Serena, I want to talk to the people out there listening who have always been interested in yoga, have maybe heard themselves say a few times recently, I should get into it again, or I should try it sometime. What I've been saying to folks recently is the hardest part about yoga is showing up, and I think that I got that from you. I mean, yes. I'm pretty sure I did a lot of these things. The thing is, Serena, when I'm teaching, I have people come up to me afterwards and say, you've obviously studied with Serena, because I could hear her in your teachings, and it's just such an honor to me that they picked up on it because, you know, it's a dedication to you and it's a dedication to Katie Heath and it's a dedication to Tame and it's a dedication to David and all the teachers that I have studied with. So I started studying with you when I was 18 and over the past three years have had an interesting practice. I mean, it's always been interesting for me because I'm a traveler. But one thing that I love about the practice is the concept of being yoga versus doing yoga. So how does it overflow off of that into your life? And that I'm percent sure you told me this too, but you don't need any fancy yoga clothes or props. You don't even need a mat. That's also a prop. You just need a space that's the size of a mat to do your practice. And for a traveler, that's a beautiful thing because you can find your temple wherever you are in the world. Absolutely. As soon as you find your breath. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of maybe talk to those people out there listening who are keen to get into it and um, maybe just need that last little nudge that helps them to show up. <laughs> and showing up is in fact the key to the whole thing but i think another piece is finding a teacher or someone who appeals in a way that's like oh that's what you mean by yoga okay so that of course means you're going to have to try out several people and see what you like and you might not like what you find on the first several attempts oh well one of my favorites is a parigraha, which is non-grasping, non-greed. And it's like, oh, so am I just struggling to find the perfect? Yeah, probably. So why not just try and see? Try a teacher. If it works, good. If it doesn't, try another one. There are a plethora of teachers in Missoula now. <laughs> I first moved here, there weren't, but that's then, this is now. It doesn't mean that I was the best, it just means that I landed at a time when people were hungry. And I think people still are searching for that place that says, okay, you're who you are, come ahead. And just trying on teachers, trying on different styles of yoga, because there are enough of those now, for crying out loud. <laughs> You know, when I started back in the day, 1981, thank you very much, that was pretty much Iyengar Yoga, period on end, cross your heart, hope to die, because he had such power, 
and there are now so many more ways of approaching finding out who you are, being in the world, and does it matter which one you choose? Not particularly, it's going to be the one that works for you. Are you a vegan? No, thanks, I'm an omnivore. Does it matter? No. Are you content with who you are? Pretty much. And I keep going through all of those things of going, oh, no, not that. How about this? Okay, I can do that. You know, sitting and looking at my dog who's napping on his bed with a toy under his chin, uh, taking the dog for a walk. That could well be my yoga practice, period, I'm in. Just making sure that he gets out and I get out too. And just being in the world and seeing what's out there and being thrilled about where I live and the beauty of that. And it's like, oh, thank you. That takes care of most of my needs. So if you're looking for a teacher, try them on. You know, you don't buy shoes without trying them on. You don't buy clothes without trying them on. So why not try on a yoga teacher? Find the one that feels good for you. And don't be surprised if it takes a little bit of time. And does it matter? No, no. Just do what you need. That's the voice of Serena Early, and she's a friend and yoga teacher here in Missoula. Serena, for someone listening who is intending to travel to India, do you have any travel advice for them? Not really. So much has changed since the last time I went to India. Good Lord. Travel advice, find somebody who knows their way around a lot better than I do, because it's been, I don't know, 20, 30 years since I was there. <clears throat> a lot has changed. And if you're going to study with a teacher, find out what they suggest. Or find out somebody who's been recently that can make different suggestions. Ask. <laughs> That's the real thing. Ask questions. Find somebody who knows a lot or a little and go that way. One of my favorite things about studying with Serena was we would often begin class in Virasana or any comfortable seated position and you would read to us. Many of those readings have stuck with me to this day um, and some of them are just statements, not necessarily a, a full-length reading. And one of them though that I'd like to just kind of end the show discussing a little bit I believe comes from the Bhagavad Gita and it's Yoga is the practice of tolerating the consequences of being yourself. <laughs> yep. that's, that's pretty much what I'm coming to with not teaching in a public class, having private students, or having had private students. It's like, oh, this is just learning about me and how I am in the world. I'm good with that. Serena. Let's end the show with a little bit of advice that you may have for whoever is out there listening. Pay attention to your own self. When you ask the question, you can stand in front of the mirror if you wanted to, but you can ask the question and see what your body says. But just pay attention. Be aware. Notice. That's about it. I think that's what yoga is about. 
personally. So I feel like I've just now taken your class and I hope that whoever's out there listening also <laughs> feels just a shift in their energy. And uh, at this point in the practice, we would lay back. And rest. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> do Shavasana, corpse pose. I can do that. But just the opportunity to take a breath, be here, notice, relax, let go. Thank you so much for taking the time and energy to join me on the trail as traveled. Thank you. Thanks for asking. What song would you like to end your show with? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to have a group of friends that we play music once a week. And do I remember what we played? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. But coming up with the song right now is like, huh? I don't know. So I don't know. Do you have any of those songs recorded that you guys play on Wednesdays? The only one that I have recorded and I don't know what it sounds like is what we end with every week. Lullaby, you know, that your mother may have sung to you or you have sung to children. And we play it and it's fun. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, The Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. The Trail Less Traveled premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream the show live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, the show is also a podcast available everywhere. You can learn more about our global and community-based outreach programs and view the full show archive by visiting traillesstraveled.net. The Trail Less Traveled is dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. Tonight's episode was recorded here in Missoula, in the home of my yoga teacher and friend, Serena Early. I would like to thank Serena for taking the time and energy to join me on The Trail Less Traveled. It was an incredible honor to sit in her home, learn more about her life, and her path in yoga. 
The intention behind the trail less traveled is to provide adventure information and inspiration. And I would like to take this opportunity to invite you to join me at the Roxy Theater on Wednesday, April 26th, or Thursday, April 27th. I'll be giving a presentation for adults at 8 p.m. on Wednesday the 26th regarding African adventure, wildlife, and particularly elephants and rhinos. Afterwards, we'll be screening a film as part of the International Wildlife Film Festival. On Thursday, April 27th, at 4 p.m., I would like to invite the children and their parents in our community for a short presentation at 4 p.m., followed by a film called Serengeti, also part of the International Wildlife Film Festival. After the presentation and the film on Thursday, you can join me for an after-party, celebrating the closing of the International Wildlife Film Festival. You can learn more about both performances, the one for adults on the 26th and the one for kids on the 27th, by visiting traillesstraveled.net. This has been episode 541. For many years, people have been asking me to be interviewed for The Trail Less Traveled. And as you may have noticed, this show is dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from cultures and communities around the world. Yet, in order to celebrate the show surpassing 500 episodes, I opened the door to questions from the community here in Missoula and communities around the world where the show has been recorded. There were hundreds of questions submitted, and rather than putting together one show where I answer all the questions at once, I've slowly taken my time to answer these questions, and now and then, instead of sharing an adventure tip, I'm going to share the answer to these questions. I'd like to hand it over to Jesse now, submitting his question from San Francisco, and I recorded my answer in the forest around a crackling fire. Enjoy. Hi Mandela, this is Jesse Weber, and my question is, were you ever on an adventure when you thought you were going to die? I would love to know. I'm standing by a crackling fire up in Montana in the forest. It's been raining heavily recently, and I'm making a leave no trace fire, cooking steelhead as soon as these flames die down and I've got some nice coals. I want to take this moment to thank Jesse for his awesome question. Jesse's like a brother to me who I've traveled to Cuba with and wanted to answer his question about near-death experiences. The one that comes to mind was when I was guiding whitewater on the Orange River, which marks the boundary line between Namibia and South Africa. And uh, we'd run it a couple months prior at its highest flow that had been up until that point run commercially. And a phenomenal multi-day trip, a braided river that dumps into two different gorges, one which is unrunnable, and the other can be pretty significant at higher flows. And you run a rapid right above a waterfall called Ritchie Falls, And, uh, oh my gosh, as I tell this, I remember another story. So we portaged this waterfall, Ritchie Falls, and I remember one time when we were sending my raft down, and I was the only one in my raft. My clients were walking around, and I was holding on to a throw bag that my boss had me hold on to to drop me over the couple class three drops right above the unrunnable class six (laughs) 
waterfall that was tumbling into the gorge, which looked like a cappuccino hitting boulders. Um, anyways, I uh, was skeptical. I, I did propose that he have a spotter. I think it's always important to have someone behind you holding your PFD to make sure you don't lose ground. But unfortunately, he did slip and lose that rope, and I almost went over the falls. I'll never forget that moment. Everything slowed down. But I did manage to stroke myself to shore, and I remember kissing the shore, being surrounded by the mist of this waterfall that you wouldn't survive if you went over in the middle of the southern Namib and Kalahari Desert. And I think most of my near-death experiences actually happened on that river. A couple months later, we were running an upper section because the lower section, the gorge, was too high. And we were camped on River Right in this tunnel through the growth that was close to the river. So looked like Mars on either side, but where the river ran, soil was actually really fertile and a lot of bush would grow there. And that's a lot of the times where the baboons would run alongside the river and yell at us. And we camped that time on River Right and we went through this little tunnel in the thick bush and camped that night and a flash flood came in the middle of the night, early hours of the morning. And we had to wake out all the clients up and eventually the mud actually started to fall down into where we were camped on either side. So Alex, a phenomenal local guide who I work with, climbed up the slope and tied a throw bag to an acacia tree. And then all the clients uh, climbed out. And the next morning, I remember waking up, being soaking wet, covered in mud, and the footprints of a leopard that had come and smelt my head while I was sleeping that night. And then went down to the water, drank water, and came back up. So those are two of the close death experiences that come to mind. Another one which surprisingly isn't, you know, the um, Orange River Gorge once again, but there's been many different adventures up there on that river. I remember a group of Boy Scouts, South Africa's version of Boy Scouts from Stellenbosch, started a fire, a bushfire, and it got out of control for a moment. We were able to put it out. Another client of mine got bit by Parabithis granulatus, which was an incredibly poisonous scorpion in that part of Southern Africa. Another story, which I'll share later, about almost departing with my finger on that river. So yeah, that river has taught me many lessons. And uh, when I think of close to death experiences, those are the two that come to mind on the Orange River. Another one happened on the Ahansel River in Morocco when uh, my boat went over a steep drop, borderline waterfall, and the uh, raft started to flip. And the oar, my uh, upstream oar, which was currently the low side of the raft as the waterfall pulled the boat back in and I started to climb on the high side to prevent this boat from flipping. And the oar went between my knee brace and my femur. And I almost uh, broke my femur and got trapped in that boat if it had flipped upside down because the knee brace is metal, so I wouldn't have been able to cut myself out of that one. So that comes to mind as uh, one of the near-death experiences. Thanks for your question, Jesse. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends, in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Get engaged, and please use your voice to speak up on the resources that we love. And as always, get outside and shred the gnar. Because as you know, the thing about the gnar is it doesn't shred itself.